0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. The clay tablet shattered, breaking into a dozen jagged pieces as it hit the floor. Cursing, the bearded soldier reached down, trying to fit the pieces back together, but to no avail. Frustrated and growling, he stomped his heel down onto one of the shards, further breaking it. He glanced out the door of the archive, imagining the kinds of treasures his fellow soldiers were finding here in the incredibly wealthy palace at the heart of the city of Mari. They had marched for days through the Syrian desert and along the Euphrates River to get here. They had fought the armies of Mari. They had won the city for their ruler, Hammurabi, king of Babylon and king of the four corners of the world. But now the soldier was stuck here in this dark room, stuffed to the ceiling with packed wooden shelves lit only by braziers and torches, shoving clay tablets into boxes, while his compatriots were offered the opportunity to loot the treasures of an old and powerful kingdom. The soldier reached up onto the shelf and wrapped his big scarred hands around a stack of tablets. He looked at the one on top, tracing a finger over the sequence of horizontal, diagonal, and vertical lines incised in the clay. They were just lines to him. He couldn't read cuneiform script, and it had never occurred to him to learn. War was his business. The sharp bronze spearhead and shield, the thud of arrows and awaiting flesh, the smell of flames and fear in the aftermath of a siege. Writing belonged to the scribes. He shrugged to himself and shoved the tablets into the box waiting at his feet. Hammurabi, king of Babylon, king of the four corners of the world, conqueror of Larsa, Eshnuna, and now Mari, benefactor of the gods, had ordered it. He had come into the archive personally to inspect its contents, the soldier had heard, and so here he was, loading boxes with worthless clay instead of gold and silver. The King of Mari had been Hammurabi's ally for two crucial years before the relationship soured. The soldier knew that much. He had fought alongside soldiers from Mari against the Elamites and at the siege of Larsa. The soldier couldn't know that he was in the archive to remove all traces of Hammurabi's correspondence with the King of Mari. Whatever had passed between them before their parting of the ways would be lost to the future. Only Hammurabi's version of events would remain. He would be seen precisely as he wanted to be seen, not through the eyes of a defeated foe. Such betrayals and reversals of fortune were commonplace in the chaotic political world of the Near East in the centuries after 2000 BC. We know Hammurabi's name but he was just one of many ambitious rulers who soaked the fertile earth of Mesopotamia in blood in their pursuit of power. Today, we'll get to know Hammurabi and his contemporaries, the ruthless conquerors of a forgotten age. And also, I have some really cool news. I wrote a book. It's called The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and Forty Years That Shook the World. If you enjoyed our Seasons of Tides on the Early Modern Period, then you'll like this, I promise. The Verge is out now, and you can order a hard copy, ebook, or audiobook, which I read naturally, from your distributor of choice. If you've ever been looking for a way to support Tides of History, ordering The Verge is the best way you could do it. I'd really appreciate it. There's a link in this episode description that will take you there. Hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. I'm Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me. By this point in our current season of Tides of History, we've spent enough time all over the planet to know that there's no such thing as a single cradle of civilization. The ancient world was full of different cradles. Agriculture was invented separately in the Fertile Crescent, South Asia, West Africa, at least two different places in China, New Guinea, and a still growing number of spots in the Americas. The same goes for pottery, writing, social complexity, the scalable techniques of political control that comprise the state urbanism, and essentially everything else that makes up the loose bundle of concepts we call quote-unquote civilization. And yet there's still something deeply fascinating about Mesopotamia and the broader Near East, the area stretching from Iran through Mesopotamia to Syria, the Mediterranean coast of the Levant, and Anatolia. The sheer weight of the past in this region is kind of hard to fathom a more or less continuous run of development from hunter-gatherers to the first farmers to the first cities and states, seemingly in a logical sequence. Whether that sequence actually is logical is a question for another time. With that said, the characteristic settlement form through much of this region is called a tell, which is basically an artificial mound created by generation after generation after generation of occupancy on the same site— These tells can be truly enormous in extent. They cover acre after acre. They stand tens of meters high. Only millennia of living on the same spot can create a tell of that size. This makes them physical reminders, markers on the landscape of how deep this past really goes. Layer after layer after layer of tradition and practice builds up, It subtly shapes the way that later people live their lives— A person living atop a tell settlement in, say, 1800 BC might not have realized that they were literally climbing up the remnants of their predecessors' lives on their way from their goat pastures to their house, but their journey was inherently defined by those past actions. It's a great metaphor for the long and complicated history of the Near East more generally. Organized political life in Mesopotamia was already old by the time Sargon of Akkad built what is considered the world's first empire around 2300 BC. That was about a thousand years after the city of Uruk reached its peak. Sargon's age was still another thousand prior to the rise of the Assyrian Empire. The best-known figure of this age, Hammurabi of Babylon, he of the famous code, marks the rough midpoint between Sargon and the age of Assyrian domination. All of this is to say that we're dealing with a long, long period of time. It's also a period of time that has a lot of evidence for us to deal with and understand. Archaeological material, of course, but even more in the way of writing. This was a literate world that's left us tens of thousands of texts of various kinds. That's enough written material to give us insights, often sporadic and incomplete and hard to understand but still insights, into a whole range of different places, times, and cultures within this broader period. So for the next two episodes, we're going to try to make sense of this complex, confusing, and long-lost political world, up to the point when we can catch a glimpse of the glittering peaks of the late Bronze Age. It was a world of constant conflict between competing states and would-be conquerors, most of whom never succeeded in conquering much of anything, much less leaving a lasting legacy. Hammurabi was the quintessential figure of this era. He was one of the few truly successful conquerors whose name is still known more than 3,700 years later— but his ambitions essentially died with him. All of that blood, all of that destruction, to create an empire that barely outlived its creator. This was just the way of the Near Eastern world from about 2000 to 1600 BC, and that's what we'll explore today. When we last left the Near East, the Akkadian Empire built by Sargon and his deified grandson Sin was in the process of crumbling. Stretching from the Susiana Plain and the Zagros Mountains of western Iran through Mesopotamia to Syria and even Lebanon at its peak, the Akkadian rulers constructed a network of military garrisons, colonies, and trading posts from which to dominate their subjects. For most scholars working on this period, Sargon's empire should be seen as the first in world history, and it was definitely a template for everything that came afterward in the Near East. For about 2,000 years, people from Babylon to Assyria to Achaemenid Persia looked at Sargon and his successors as the prototypical conquerors and empire builders. The Akkadians were figures to emulate, but they were also warnings to heed. Few mourned the fall of their city, Agade, or the brutal conquest state that those rulers had built around it. Yet for all its fame and its importance to later generations as a model, the Akkadian Empire didn't actually last very long. About a century, and even during its peak under Sargon and Naramsin, rivals and even subordinates had contested its power and authority. Mesopotamia and its environs had been politically fragmented in the preceding period. This patchwork of city-states and petty kingdoms fought constantly over territory and trade routes. They occasionally came together in larger groupings, they made alliances and shared rulers. They also shared a common culture, a system of writing, religious beliefs, and social structures. But politically, they were a fractious mess. The Akkadian Empire had been a thin veneer of vicious domination built on top of this state of affairs, but it didn't erase it. When the Akkadians fell from power, this fragmented landscape reappeared with a vengeance. Some of the players were different new dynasties of rulers came to power in the old cities, some of them from the highlands of Western Iran, others from the semi nomadic Amorites who lived in the spaces between urban areas. On the whole, however, a century of Akkadian rule hadn't changed much. After another century or so, around 2100 BC, another line of kings succeeded in establishing a smaller-scale version of empire in the region. This is what's called the Third Dynasty of Ur, or Ur III. As their name suggests, they were based in the city of Ur, the traditional urban heartland of southern Mesopotamia. That was in contrast to the Akkadians, who were a bit further north. The Ur III state didn't extend anywhere near as far as the Akkadian Empire had. Syria, Lebanon, and Anatolia remained outside their reach, and peripheral areas were merely allied rather than formally subject to the Ur III kings. But insofar as we can tell, the Ur III state was more internally coherent than the Akkadian Empire had been. It had more centralization and control over production and taxation. The kings of Ur invested more heavily in infrastructure, especially irrigation canals, which were built with royal taxes and resources. Thanks to the thousands upon thousands of archival texts that survived from the Ur III period, along with inscriptions, we know a ton about how the state worked and what its kings did, much more so than for the Akkadians. And the many hymns of praise composed for the kings give us a pretty good idea of how those kings wanted to be seen. I place my foot on the neck of the foreign land, says one, whose subject was the Ur III king Shulgi. The fame of my weapons is established as far as the south, and my victory is established in the highlands. On top of that, he's, quote, muscular as a cheetah, galloping like a thoroughbred ass at full gallop. He was also, for good measure, a trained scribe and a lethal shot with a sling. Whatever the truth of his muscularity, or his ability with a sling, or his military accomplishments, Shulgi definitely wanted to be seen as an impressive and imposing ruler. The Ur III kings, like the Akkadians before them, endured as imperial rulers for about a century before they were undone by a combination of internal revolt and invasion by the Elamites of western Iran. ibbi sin the fifth king of the dynasty, lost control over the cities of Mesopotamia early in his reign, and at the same time the plain of Susa slipped from his grasp. He managed to stay on the throne for another two decades, until Ur itself was captured by the Elamites and ibbi sin deported to Susa as a prisoner— Unlike the Akkadians, however, there was little positive memory of the Ur III kings afterward. They weren't role models, except insofar as they were examples of what not to do. If Sargon was the ideal conqueror, Ibisin sin was the ruler to be avoided at all costs. For the four centuries after 2000 BC, when Ibissin sin and Ur fell to the Elamites, no ruler succeeded in establishing any sort of genuine empire across this whole region. There were conquerors, none of them better known than Hammurabi of Babylon, but their achievements were ephemeral. Political fragmentation returned once again, the default state to which the Near East always seemed to revert. All across the region, city-states and kingdoms shared their broad cultural background, political structures, and institutions. They operated within a common framework of political interaction, communication, and especially trade. But none dominated, and that wasn't for lack of trying. So, who were the players in this never-ending game of violent musical chairs? Some of the cities and kingdoms will sound familiar, but others, and not necessarily the least important ones, will probably be new to you. Despite the vast quantities of text and archaeological material dating to this period, which enables incredibly detailed and specialized histories to be written, it's still a pretty unfamiliar and even alien stretch of times and places— We need to acquaint ourselves with the lay of the land around, say, 1900 BC, before we go any further. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers are what made life in Mesopotamia, the heartland of the Near East, possible. Two rivers meandering through the flat alluvial plains of present-day Iraq and enabling incredibly productive agriculture and irrigation, before terminating in the long stretch of marshland at the head of the Persian Gulf. At that point, the Gulf then extended much further inland than it does today. The city of Ur was then at the marshy edge of the gulf, where the land and the sea melded for a great distance before the water opened up. Today, it's a hundred miles inland. Major cities dotted the Tigris and Euphrates spaced quite closely together. It was usually only 20 or 30 miles from one large urban center to the next. Uma and Lagash, two major cities that spent decades fighting a border conflict over a tiny stretch of valuable land, were only 40 miles apart. A similar distance separated Uruk and Ur. Tightly packed villages, towns, fields full of grain, palm orchards, and herds of grazing sheep and goats filled the spaces between cities. Southern Mesopotamia, the region formerly known as Sumer, was the urban heartland. It was the place where the soil was most fertile, where the nearby marshes provided a wealth of key resources, and accordingly, where people were most densely settled. As it had been since the Uruk period, more than a thousand years before, southern Mesopotamia continued to pull in trade goods, ranging from tin to slaves to cedar wood from all over Eurasia and beyond. The ruler who could dominate the region, as the Ur-Three kings and the Akkadians had done before them, would have access to a fractious, difficult-to-control, but incredibly rich and populous power base. But southern Mesopotamia was only one small part of this world— Traders followed the gulf past what's now Bahrain, out toward Oman, and beyond to the cities of the Indus Valley civilization in South Asia. For centuries, they had been key trading partners of the Sumerians and Akkadians. Soon, however, those cities would shrink, crumble, and eventually be abandoned altogether. To the east of southern Mesopotamia lay the Susiana Plain, the lowlands of western Iran centered on the city of Susa. Beyond that were the highlands of the Iranian Plateau, and to the north, the Zagros Mountains. In this period, the Elamites dominated that region, and their kings were powerful players in the Near Eastern political game. It was they who had sacked Ur and brought down its third dynasty. Following the Tigris and Euphrates further to the north, the cities were still there, part of that same cultural and political milieu, but they were a bit thinner on the ground. These were places like Nippur, Kish, Eshnunna, Babylon, Sippar, and Akkad, the now lost city of Sargon and his successors. Present-day Baghdad was essentially the northern limit of this zone, only Akkad may have been a bit further to the north. Beyond that, where the huge expanse of the Syrian desert was far less hospitable to the agriculture that made dense urban life possible, pastoralists mostly ruled, especially the group known somewhat generically as the Amorites. We'll talk more about them later. Cities existed, some were quite powerful and important, but they stuck close to the Tigris and the Euphrates. If we follow the Euphrates as it headed west through the desert into Syria, the first major stopping point was the city-state of Mari. Mari was a long way distant from the Mesopotamian heartland, but it was a key intermediary between Syria and Anatolia beyond, and the dense cities of the south. More cities and small kingdoms existed further west, like Mari's great rival Ebla and Yamad, on the site of present-day Aleppo. But instead of going that direction, let's head back to Iraq. We'll follow the Tigris as it goes north. There, at one of the Tigris's few fords, about halfway between today's Mosul and Tikrit, was a relatively small, humble city of perhaps ten thousand people. This was Assur, and in the fifteen hundred years to come, it would become the beginning of a whole series of vast empires—the empires of the Assyrians. You're at a place you just discovered. Assur wasn't a particularly imposing place around 1900 BC. It was larger than the small town it had been 600 years earlier. By any standard of the day, it was a full-fledged city, but it wasn't what you'd think of as the starting point for not one but several empires. Estimates of its population around this time vary from 7,000 to as many as 15,000 inhabitants, with the consensus closer to the bottom end of that range than the top. This made Asur far smaller than Mari, which had perhaps 40,000 people at its peak, definitely smaller than Ur at the end of the Third Dynasty, with 60,000 inhabitants or even more. And Asur's hinterland was much less extensive than those other cities. It sat near the northern limit of what was possible for rain-fed agriculture, and the narrow band of land around the Tigris could support the small city's population, but no more. Beyond that was highland and desert, which offered grazing for livestock but little else— Still, Asur's location wasn't without its benefits—it sat at the confluence of several different ecological zones—highlands, river valley, and desert—each of which offered different resources. The city also commanded one of the few fordable spots along this stretch of the Tigris, where people and animals could cross the river without problems. These two facts—the different ecological zones and the ford—meant that Asur sat at the confluence of several regional trade routes— It's therefore not entirely surprising that Asur produced a large number of enterprising merchants who were willing to travel a long, long way. Asur had been subject to Ur during the rule of its third dynasty. It was certainly part of that broader Mesopotamian cultural milieu. In fact, it was a fairly typical city in terms of its size and setup. But Asur's connections were far more extensive than just the rich, ancient lands to its south. In fact, our most revealing information about the activities of the merchants of Assur comes not from the city itself, but from a large mound in central Anatolia, today's Turkey. This place, known today as Kültepe, is around 600 miles, a thousand kilometers, away from Assur. That is a long way in any period, but it's even further in the centuries after 2000 BC. Despite that distance, Kültepe, known then as the city of Kanesh was home to a large community of merchants from Assur, people who had left home to seek their fortune. We know this because of the staggering number of letters found at Kanesh that tell us incredible details about their trade and their lives. More than 23,000 of these texts survive. It's the largest archive relating to long-distance trade that exists not only from the Bronze Age, but from any period all the way up to the early Middle ages We have to wait almost 3,000 years after the Kinesh archive until the Jewish merchants of Cairo and Egypt began to store their precious documents in the Cairo Geniza for an archive of comparable size and information. It's a really stunning resource. Even 140 years after the discovery of the first tablets, scholars are still only scratching the surface of what we can learn about this world. The most recent overview on the letters, a hefty tome by the Danish Assyriologist Mogens Trolle Larsen, is full of references to tablets that haven't even been formally published, much less analyzed and digested. The overwhelming majority of the tablets come from Kanesh, but other contemporary texts, some of them even mentioning the same people and families as the Kanesh tablets, have also been found at other spots in Anatolia. These Assyrian merchants got around, and they are a wonderful window into this broader world of movement trade, and politics that united the Near East. The Assyrian merchants didn't dominate Kanesh. That honor belonged to the kings of Kanesh, who lived in a large, gleaming white palace atop the large mound that marks the settlement's high point. Ironically, the Assyrian merchants don't seem to have been especially concerned with this king. They rarely name him in their letters, and they seem to have taken his presence for granted. So far as we know, the merchants didn't have their own special quarter within the city— They just lived in the large lower town surrounding the palace, a warren of streets and narrow alleys, lined with houses where as many as 20,000 or 30,000 people might have lived. Assyrians lived side-by-side with the local Anatolians. They worked with them, they bought their goods, they married them, and they otherwise interacted in totally normal circumstances. Their material culture was almost indistinguishable from that of the locals, including their houses. These were often substantial structures. They were made of mud brick and thick wooden beams. Some of them were brilliantly whitewashed and stood at least two stories high. To our eyes, they weren't especially welcoming. The houses were oriented toward interior courtyards paved with stone rather than facing outward onto the streets. But inside, they were filled with hearths, storerooms, sleeping chambers, and in some cases, archives full of texts these archives have provided us with the tablets that give scholars so much insight into this long lost world. The houses, you see, were abandoned in some haste, just before the lower town and the palace was burned to the ground. Bad for them, good for us. The tablets mostly lie where they fell from the shelves, hundreds or even thousands of them still lying where their Assyrian expatriate merchant owners left them almost 4,000 years ago. This means that in many cases, we even know about the houses and domestic circumstances of the people engaged in trade and correspondence, since the texts literally come from their houses. There's almost nothing like this in the ancient world. So from these texts, we can discern a pretty compelling and detailed portrait of the Assyrian merchant's trade. They did business both in Kanesh and further out in Anatolia. They exchanged tin and textiles for gold and silver, which they then shipped back to Asur itself. But Asur didn't actually produce the tin or the textiles, it was simply a midpoint, a central place where trade routes converged before reshipment. The fine textiles were mostly produced further south along the Tigris and Euphrates, in the heartland of Mesopotamia. The tin came from the east, probably from Central Asia, today's Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and even further, via the Iranian plateau. The gold and silver acquired at Kanesh paid for those imports and offered a nice cut of profit to the Assyrian middlemen—enough profit to justify the risk of shipping precious items 600 miles, 1,000 kilometers over rough and dangerous terrain filled with bandits and predatory rulers. To do this, the traders used sophisticated tools and concepts—something like a joint stock partnership called a narukum, literally money bag, they used systems of debt and credit. They used legal instruments for guaranteeing payment, and so on. But it would be a mistake to view this trade as a purely economic activity, defined by supply and demand, markets, and the profit motive. Trade was embedded in a much broader set of concerns, especially political concerns. In fact, for the king of Assur and presumably other cities, politics and trade were overlapping and complementary activities. The palace of the king of Kanesh loomed over the lower town in which the Assyrian merchants lived, wasn't like they could forget the broader environment in which they worked. Not that it would have occurred to them to separate trade and politics anyway. One of the Assyrian merchants of Kanesh, a man named Shah Ishtar, received letters from the king of Assur and seems to have acted as his agent in Kanesh. We know that the king himself was an investor in the Anatolian trade, so he had a vested interest in its progress. In fact, it seems like this Assyrian long-distance trade was closely associated with the king of Asur from the very beginning. One of the oldest tablets found at Kanesh had been sealed with the impression of the king Erishum I, who was obviously writing to the Assyrians of Kanesh with instructions, orders, or queries. For his part, the king's job was to secure safety and, if possible, trading advantages for the merchants of his city— He negotiated with the rulers of other states regarding import duties, the legal rights of Assyrians abroad, the security of trading caravans, and rights of compensation. In one case, the king of Assur negotiated a deal with a minor ruler in southern Anatolia that stipulated any quote-unquote Akkadians, that is, merchants from further south in Mesopotamia, who came to trade would be taken and handed over to the Assyrian merchants in that city— Back at home, the kings of Assur did whatever they could to attract trade and trade routes to their city, and to give the residents of Assur whatever advantages they could. They were not trying to compete in some sort of free market. Instead, politics and trade went hand-in-hand in in a zero-sum game of competition. Kanesh was only the center, the hub of a much larger network of Assyrian traders that extended even deeper into Anatolia— There were actually 30 different merchant colonies, called Karum and smaller trading posts, Wabartum. Another 10 of those posts dotted the routes leading back toward Mesopotamia. This long-distance trade made Assur, its merchants, and its ruler rich, but their business and their political world was volatile. There's little reason to doubt that the fires that burned the merchants' houses and palace in Kanesh were set intentionally, in the course of a violent conflict between the city of Kanesh and its neighbors. The city was rebuilt, some of the Assyrian merchants returned, but they also had many other places they might go, the same structures of treaties and commercial privileges negotiated by their king and overseen by the king's agents. Our body of evidence for the Assyrian trade is unique, and the Assyrians were oriented toward long-distance commerce. But there's no reason to think that the Assyrians were unique. There were merchants from Ur and Lagash, Elam, Mari and Ebla, Byblos on the coast of the Levant, Hatusha and Central Anatolia, all of them plying their own roots, with their kings taking an active hand in the process, sometimes with military force. The trade was volatile, the roots changed, so did the products, so did the players, but the intertwined business of commerce and politics went on as usual. That same volatility applied at home, too. While the rulers of Assur we've been talking about seem to have been drawn from a single ongoing dynasty, one native to the city itself, they were soon replaced by an upstart. This man's name was Shamshi Adad, and he was a conqueror, the most successful one the region had seen in a couple of centuries. Assur was just one of the places he ruled in the course of more than four decades of war and conquest that built a state scholars know as the Kingdom of Upper Mesopotamia. That name is basically a literal description. Shamshi Adad ruled over a broad swath of Upper Mesopotamia and Syria, but his state was new enough and crumbled quickly enough that it never got a more compelling name. It was big, though, and Shamshi Adad was a skilled player. He took down the ancient kingdom of Mari in eastern Syria. He controlled the Tigris and Euphrates south nearly to present-day Baghdad. He ruled from the far northern fringes of Iraq and Syria. Two of his sons were supposed to serve as his surrogate rulers, one from their ancestral home at Ekelatum near Assur and the other at Mari, but neither, especially the one at Mari, turned out to be much of a ruler. In one letter... Shamshi Adad berated the son ruling at Mari, a young man named Yasma Adu. "'How long do we have to guide you in every matter?' he wrote. "'Don't you have a beard on your chin? When are you going to take charge of your house?' Shamshi Adad's kingdom, large and impressive as it was, didn't outlive its founder. He died either in battle or of natural causes around 1775 BC. Before long, that kingdom fragmented back into its constituent parts." Another ruler, however, was ready to pick up where he left off. He already ruled in Babylon, a ways to the south, and he had carefully bided his time while Shamshi-Adad was alive and powerful. But now that Shamshi-Adad was dead, Hammurabi saw his opening. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit angie.com. That's a n g i . c o m. If you know the name of any ancient near eastern ruler, it's likely to be Hammurabi. He has the code, of course, and as a result appears in textbooks and if memory serves at least a couple of editions of the civilization computer game. But the parallel with Shamshi-Adad is important, not least because they were contemporaries. In fact, they shared a great deal in common. Both were ruthless and accomplished conquerors who built wide-ranging states. Both, despite their accomplishments and Hammurabi's posthumous fame, failed to build states that endured in the way that those of the Akkadians or the Earthry dynasts had done. Most importantly, both Shamshi-Adad and Hammurabi were what contemporaries called Amorites. The Near East at this time was a patchwork of different ethnic and linguistic groups, social forms, and ways of life— There was a lot happening in the countryside and the desert steppe beyond the cities that we tend to see as the center of this world. The cities were never isolated from the lands beyond or from the people living in them. That's where the Amorites come in. Amorite is kind of a tricky term. It's one that shows up over a very long period of time. In some of the earliest Sumerian texts, it's a term describing people who lived to the west of Sumer. In the Bible's book of Genesis, it was a specific term for a group of highlanders in the land of Canaan. Some scholars have assumed that the Amorites were a distinct ethnic group, one that occupied the desert areas west of Mesopotamia, they lived a semi-nomadic lifestyle of livestock herding, and they spoke a language belonging to the Canaanite branch of the Semitic languages. According to this line of reasoning, this distinctive ethnic group then launched a series of invasions of the settled lands, They placed their rulers on the thrones of Babylon and other key places in the Near Eastern world. For other scholars, however, Amorite refers more to a way of life, that semi-nomadic pastoralist lifestyle that could be adopted by people and groups in a much more fluid process of identity formation. The best explanation, as the archaeologist Aaron Burke argues in a recent book on the Amorites, is a bit of both. At some points, being an Amorite was a pretty straightforward ethnic label to claim, a matter of descent and habits— At others, however, being an Amorite was a matter of associating with an Amorite king like Shamshi-Adad or Hammurabi, and people claimed the label for themselves. At still other times, perhaps when people calling themselves Amorites were seen as bandits or invaders, that Amorite label might not be so attractive. At the core level, however, Amorite is a broad label for semi-nomadic groups of pastoralists who spoke a Semitic language and lived across a wide swath of Mesopotamia. Remember that despite its incredible fertility, most of this region isn't exactly suitable for farming on a large scale. The wide floodplains of southern Mesopotamia, sure. The river valleys of the Tigris and Euphrates further north and west, sure. But past a certain point, actually right around the city of Assur, there is not enough rain to support farming, and the river valleys are pretty narrow. Even in the urban heartland, there were still plenty of places that were too dry or had soils too poor to support intensive agriculture. The rest of the land was some mixture of desert, semi-desert, and steppe grassland. It wasn't great for farming, but it was perfectly suitable for grazing animals. These in-between spaces, which existed in and around the major cities everywhere from Mari in Syria to Asur in northern Mesopotamia, all the way to the urban heartland of the south, seemed to have been the Amorites' home. From the very beginning, they planted some crops, but they made most of their living tending their herds, especially herds of sheep. The textile industries of the larger cities across the region had a voracious hunger for wool, and the Amorites' flocks went a long way toward providing it. The Amorites emerged after around 2500 BC as people inhabiting minor settlements outside places like Mari in Syria, but they became far more noticeable after around 2200 BC. That's because a period of intense aridification altered the climate and environment of the Near East right at that time. The environments in which the Amorites had lived, which were already arid and fairly marginal, became even more inhospitable. So the Amorites went on the move, taking their herds with them. At some times and places, the Amorites were effectively refugees. In essence, this climatic shift produced an Amorite diaspora that spread far beyond their original zone of occupation. Even amid this uncertainty, the Amorites found ways of making a living. Some of the Amorites turned into long-distance traders, but others turned to war. Not as invading conquerors, but as mercenaries. The states of southern Mesopotamia and beyond were always fighting one another. They needed soldiers, and a population of marginal semi-nomads on the fringes of their world was a great source of potential manpower. The Ur III kings had Amorite elite guards called Martu in Sumerian, along with Amorite army units, Amorite fortress garrisons, and Amorite generals. When the arid margins of the Mesopotamian world became more viable once again, and the Or-3 state fell apart, centuries of work as merchants, professional soldiers, and participants in urban life made the Amorite tribes a political force. This was the background to the rise of Shamshi Adad, the first of the major Amorite conquerors. In the fragmented, chaotic, and violent political world of Mesopotamia, being able to call upon amorite allies and the weight of amorite military tradition by descent was a pretty powerful tool it's traditional to call the named amorite groups of this age tribes we know their names with all of the ethnic baggage that label carries but they may have been more like political factions with access to military force Shamshi Adad's ancestors had already installed themselves as urban rulers in the north and worked outward from there, taking cities like Assur and then, during Shamshi Adad's lifetime, a whole bunch of others. Many other Amorite dynasties did precisely that right before and around that time, between 1900 and 1800 BC. Larsa, one of the biggest cities of southern Mesopotamia, had a succession of rulers claiming Amorite descent. So did Ebla, a major center to the west of Mari in Syria. So, did Biblos on the coast of the Levant. The first post Ur III king of Ur may have been an Amorite. Amid the continuous fighting between fragmented polities, Amorites were major players. So, a note here for what follows, I'm drawing on the Assyriologist Mark Vandemeerup's book, King Hammurabi of Babylon, a biography. So, Babylon. Babylon was thus one of many cities across this region that had a ruling Amorite dynasty. Unlike Larsa, Ur, Nippur, Lagash, or Mari, however, Babylon wasn't some ancient and powerful center. It had at most been a town during the Akkadian period after 2300 BC, and that was probably what it was when Hammurabi's ancestors first took it over around 1900 BC and installed themselves as rulers. Babylon only became a real city, much less a state that played a significant role in Mesopotamian politics, during the rule of this Amorite dynasty. At Hammurabi's accession to the throne, just after 1800 BC, the generally accepted year is 1792 BC, Babylon lay at the center of a small regional state. It also controlled some of the neighboring cities like Sippar and Kish, both of which were far older and more established. This little state lay at the far northern end of the region that would later become known as Babylonia, essentially the core of southern Mesopotamia up to roughly today's Baghdad. As we might expect in this fragmented and dangerous landscape, Hammurabi came to his throne surrounded by enemies. So far as we can tell, Shamshi Adad was the most powerful of them, ruling his large territory from beyond Mari in Syria to the west, all the way to Asur in the Zagros Mountains of Iran in the east. But there were others, too. To Hammurabi's northeast in the vicinity of present-day Baghdad was the state centered on the city of Eshnuna. Eshnuna was Shamshi Adad's great enemy, and it was a powerful one. To the south, the king of Larsa, a guy named Rim-Sin, had recently succeeded in uniting most of fractious southern Mesopotamia under his rule, from the head of the Persian Gulf all the way to the fringes of Hammurabi's Babylon. Hammurabi's father had tried and failed to defeat Rim-Sin of Larsa around the time of Hammurabi's birth. That defeat underscored the fact that while Babylon was a player in regional politics, Hammurabi's kingdom was just one, nowhere close to the most powerful of the states around it. It behooved the young king of Babylon to tread carefully. And that's exactly what Hammurabi did during the early years of his reign. He stayed out of that conflict between Eshnunna and Shamshiada, communicating with both and engaging in minor military campaigns, but nothing of any real consequence. We know he canceled his subjects' debts, that he sponsored public works like irrigation canals and city walls, and supported the temples and therefore the gods. These were all the things that were expected of a good and proper king. None of that was outstanding. But what happened after Shamshi-Adad's death, traditionally placed in 1776 BC, 16 years into Hammurabi's reign, actually was extraordinary. To the east of Mesopotamia proper, in the southern reaches of the Zagros Mountains, the Susiana Plain, and the Iranian plateau beyond, lay the state of Elam. We talked about the Elamites before on tides a few months back. They were a fully integrated part of the political world of Mesopotamia. Elamites made alliances with Mesopotamian rulers, they fell victim to Mesopotamian conquerors like Sargon and the Ur Three Kings, and they returned the favor in turn. The last king of Ur's third dynasty was captured by the Elamites, who then sacked Ur and ruled it for the next couple of decades. When the king of Elam, a guy named Siwe-Palar-Hupak, went looking for allies to fight against Eshnuna, which blocked his access to Mesopotamia, he didn't have trouble finding them. The new king of Mari, who had replaced Shamshi-Adad's feckless son, was one. Hammurabi was another. Together, the Allies succeeded in defeating Eshnunna, removing its king and occupying some of the cities Esnuna had previously held. With the death of Shamshi-Adad and the Elamites' victory over Esnuna, Siwe Palar Hupak figured that he was going to be the new power to be reckoned with in the region. Who would stand in his way? To that end, he decided to play off two of the remaining powers, Hammurabi of Babylon and Rimsin of Larsa, against one another. Siwe Palar Hupak ordered Hammurabi to be ready to join him in a campaign against Larsa. At the same time, he ordered Rimsin of Larsa to prepare for a campaign with the Elamites against Babylon. It was a clever plan and it would have worked if Rimsin and Hammurabi hadn't compared their instructions from their would be Elamite master. They avoided the internecine conflict, which would have weakened them both, leaving them easy prey for Siwe Palar Hupak and the Elamites to gobble up at their leisure. For the moment, Mari and its king, Zimri Lim, remained a strong Elamite ally, but that relationship too turned sour after other Elamite subordinates attacked cities under Mari's influence in northern Mesopotamia. Siwe Palar Hupak turned his attention toward Babylon, but Hammurabi was prepared. Knowing that the Elamites had alienated Zimri Lim of Mari, Hammurabi concluded a secret treaty with him. The two would fight together against the Elamites. An army of soldiers from Mari itself and Amorite tribesmen from the surrounding lands joined Hammurabi. He presented them with lavish gifts, rings of gold and silver, fine textiles and medallions to ensure their loyalty and that of their king, Zimri Lim. For two years, in 1765 and 1764 BC, they fought off an Elamite invasion of Babylon's territory. Hammurabi didn't so much win the war as buy time for the subordinates of Siwe Palar Hupak to turn their back on the Elamite king. Formerly loyal kings and cities abandoned the Elamites and allied themselves with Mari or Hammurabi instead. Siwe Palar Hupak was forced to sue for peace. His ambitions in Mesopotamia had failed. Hammurabi's ambitions, on the other hand, were just getting started. The city of Larsa, the most powerful state in southern Mesopotamia under its king, Rim-Sin, had declined to join Hammurabi's coalition against the Elamites. So, the very next year, 1763 BC, Hammurabi and his allies from Mari marched south against Larsa. After a six-month siege, Larsa fell to him. Hammurabi raised the city walls, but he didn't destroy the city— Instead, he declared himself the legitimate successor of Rim-Sin, and acted exactly as he'd done on his accession in Babylon 30 years earlier. He canceled debts and sponsored public works. With Elam on the sidelines and Larsa under his control, Hammurabi continued his conquests at a breakneck pace. Quite cleverly, he hadn't returned his borrowed soldiers to Mari, but kept them with his army throughout the year. Probably not a coincidence that he kept on giving them significant gifts to buy their loyalty and keep them close. The next target was Eshnuna, the major power of what's now the area around Baghdad. Eshnunna had resisted Shamshi Adad for decades and only fallen to the combined might of Babylon, Mari, and Elam. We don't know the precise details of the campaign, but it's clear that by the end of it, Eshnunna was sacked and subjugated to Hammurabi. He refrained from trying to directly conquer the open expanses of northern Mesopotamia that had belonged to Shamshi Adad. They were more trouble than they were worth. But he was happy to claim overlordship and intervene militarily when necessary. Now, even after three continuous years of fighting, Hammurabi kept going. He may not have had a choice. The balance of power was delicate at best. Mari, the most powerful city of eastern Syria and gateway to the middle and upper Euphrates, had been Hammurabi's fragile ally since the very beginning. Now, just a few months after sacking Eshnunna, the king of Babylon turned on his erstwhile supporter— Two armies, one led by Hammurabi himself, invaded Mari's territory. We don't know exactly what transpired in the war, but it's clear that Hammurabi was victorious. His armies systematically plundered the incredibly rich royal palace at Mari, making off with centuries of accumulated treasure. They also raided Mari's extensive archives. Every letter Hammurabi had written to the king of Mari, and there were many of them full of sensitive information, was boxed up and taken away to Babylon. That, I think, tells us a great deal about Hammurabi's personality. Nobody else would be able to contradict his official version of the events that made him a conqueror. It took Hammurabi only four years to conquer a vast territory in Mesopotamia and its environs. He exercised direct control over Babylon and southern Mesopotamia, what had formerly been Larsa's territory, from the Persian Gulf to Baghdad. Mari, Eshnunna, and northern Mesopotamia were all under his indirect control, ruled over by vassal kings and administrators. This area was significantly larger than what Shamshi-Adad had dominated. The task of pacification continued. Rebellions in Eshnunna and Mari in the next several years were brutally crushed. Mari was totally destroyed. But the conquest was over. This was the context that produced Hammurabi's most famous legacy, what we call Hammurabi's Code— It's actually a stela, a standing stone made of black diorite, engraved with hundreds of lines of script. Calling it a code in the sense of a binding legal system is fundamentally incorrect. That's not what the stela is. Instead, it's a monument to Hammurabi's presentation of himself as a good king. In fact, it was one of several monuments placed in different cities, all with the same message and iconography. Hammurabi was a good king. He acted in the honored traditions of those rulers who had gone before. Good kings canceled their subjects' debts, as he'd done in both Babylon and Larsa. Good kings supported the gods and the temples that housed them. Hammurabi tells us that he supported the god Enlil in the city of Nippur, Marduk in Babylon, An and Ishtar in Uruk, Tishpak in Eshnunna, and he mentions this in the text of the stela itself. What follows is a lengthy and detailed recitation of one of the other aspects of good kingship, delivering justice. A good king protects his people, especially the weakest among them, from the powerful who would prey on them. Now, that's not to say that we can't detect legal principles in the text on the Stella, they're absolutely there. It's just that this wasn't a coherent, binding body of law in the way it's usually understood. It was about Hammurabi and how he wanted to be seen, not providing his subjects with their laws. Yet despite his success and the posthumous fame his code has given him, Hammurabi's state didn't last. His descendants continued to rule Babylon for another 150 years after his death, but their territory shrank and shrank. The age of fragmentation continued, with cities fighting one another for control, would-be conquerors emerging, trying their hand at Shamshi-Adad and Hammurabi's course of action, and failing. In 1595 BC—the date's actually imprecise, but that's the best we can do— Babylon itself fell, sacked by a new set of invaders. Hammurabi's dynasty came to an end, and so did the age of fragmentation that had prevailed for four centuries. These new invaders had come from far to the north, from the lands where those Assyrian merchants had once done business in Anatolia. They were Hittites, subjects of a king ruling in the faraway city of Hattusha. Their state was just one of several coming into being at this time states that would inaugurate a much different era of large-scale kingdoms and empires fighting and competing on a vast scale across the Near East. Hittites, Mitanni, the Mycenaeans of Greece, Troy, the New Kingdom of Egypt, a new Assyrian empire. These were the players in the vast, wealthy, and dangerous game of the Late Bronze Age. Next time on Tides of History, we'll explore how that new and complex world came into being. I've also written a book called The Verge Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. It's available now on hard copy, ebook, or audiobook that I read, of course, from your distributor of choice. There's a link in this episode description that will take you there. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Tides of History ad free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Or you can listen ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. Sound designed by Molly Bach for Airship. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower beckman and Marshall Louis. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History.